Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Hello and welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Thank you so much for joining us today. For listeners, our text number is 2057 and our email is inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, I'm very excited to introduce our next guest, Sean Rush. Sean is a barrister. He's also an ex-Wellington City Councillor. He's got a master's in petroleum law and policy. You also have a master's in climate science and policy. And there's quite a bit more, but we'll get into it. Welcome, Sean. Nice to be here. So tell us more. I mean, I could actually go into your background. We could head into climate. But let's start from your early background. I believe you're a Napier boy. Yeah, I'm born and bred in Napier. And uh, you know, they say you can take the boy out of Napier and never take the Napier out of the boy. So, um, and, you know, so Hawke's Bay is still a very passionate place for me. Um, born and bred in Taradale, actually, where the floods were. Um, so mm. very familiar with, with there. A lot of friends, my brother still living there, a lot of friends still there. Um, brought up in a Catholic family. There was uh, three other siblings, uh, older brother, older sister, younger sister. Um, all of them, are, you know, moderately successful in, in everything they do. I suppose our, our little sister Erin is probably the most successful. She's a, an ex-Black Fern and uh, um, is uh, quite prominent in the, in the Wellington community, not far from where I am. Um, but yeah, I mean, fairly ordinary, uh, you know, uh, dad's a builder, he's 80 next month and he, he's still building. Uh, Mum uh, worked in the seminary on Church Road there and uh, ironed um, underpants and, and, and T-shirts for the students. Um, so she knows all the all the Maris brothers and, and priests uh, pretty much in New Zealand and uh, I know most of them too and um, and it's, it's lovely to catch up with them from time to time. But, uh, yeah, pretty ordinary, uh, nothing unusual. Um, I, I was a reasonably good sports sports person um, in a lot of different sports, um, but I prominently starred as a, as a gymnast, I suppose, and made the New Zealand side and in the age group anyway and, and represented the country. The claim to fame, actually, is I got a 9.9 on the high bar which was uh, those are the days when 10 was the maximum score. So, um, so that was that was big talk back in the day. <laughs> and there's always been a little bit of gymnastics, uh, gymnast in me. In fact, uh, just the year I got elected to the city council in 2019, I, I, I was back in the gym uh, doing, uh, thinking about doing a floor routine for a, um, a competition and, uh, and actually it was, it was actually going really well. The, the great thing is actually, is that the equipment is so much better than it was back in my day, back in the early '80s, sort of thing. That uh, although obviously I'm not as I'm not as springy uh, as I used to be, but the floor is. So I was actually getting to do the same tricks that I was doing when I was an international gymnast. And one of my colleagues, actually Simon Wolf, he videoed me uh, doing a few uh, twists and tur- turns and so forth when uh, that gym actually. Um, it got into a bit of trouble. Uh, I think the lease got uh, terminated and they were hunting for a home. We managed to sort them out. So, but yeah, I mean, St. John's College Hastings, Catholic Boys School, played rugby, um, pretty ordinary, went to university, studied law. Um, I suppose I, I was a bit unusual in that I I, I was also 
able to, to crunch numbers and, and use language. Um, so I did uh, maths, chemistry and physics in sixth form. Um, one stage thinking about being a pilot, but uh, in the end decided that law was where I should be focusing, a good public speaker. Um, and then went to went to university and uh, you know, did my law degree. It was a bit, you know, a pretty average one, really. <laughs> sort of pursued other things, really, anything but academia. Um, came back to New to Napier, um, no job. Um, drove trucks for Conroy Removal, so I've been working for them every holidays uh, since I was fourteen. And uh, and was was started thinking, well. I'm going to do this for a few uh, six months and only overseas, do my OE, that sort of thing. And then a, a, an opportunity popped up to work for a barrister, uh, criminal barrister, uh, for free. I'd have to do it for free. I thought, well, I'm better off doing that, go and live with mum and dad and go on the dole uh, and get some experience behind me. And when a couple of weeks went by and, and I'd done some really good research for him, got a young man off a drugs charge and uh, Tommy was his name. And uh, anyway, um, he was so impressed that he put me in touch with another law firm and one thing led to another. And there I was sitting in an office as a lawyer uh, in Napier and uh, sort of did that for two and a half years, always felt we'd go overseas. And, um, and uh, yeah, yeah, two and a half years later, I'd, I'd saved up a wee bit with a couple of mates and off to San Francisco, we went to play rugby looked after by the rugby club there and then I carried on to London and uh, you know I ran with the Bulls and went to the Beer Festival three times uh, and uh, and uh, worked in pubs uh, did a bit of furniture removals driving trucks and then decided well maybe it's time to get the suits back out in 1996 and a couple of very short corporate jobs led into one with uh, an oil company um, and I was getting paid I was getting paid £4.50 an hour driving a truck in London. And um, and then I moved into this job and it was paying me £12 an hour. And, and I thought I was the richest man in Wilston Green. You know, I was like, well, you know, no more catching bus and all that. So that we can do the minicab now. Um, so, um, so that was good. And, uh, and it was supposed to be a short-term contract, uh, as these ones often are. I mean, they'd just done an acquisition. They had a lot of paperwork. They needed someone to go through it all um, and, and archive it all. And um, and they were really impressed, and so was I, actually, that uh, you pick up these very complicated um, partnership documents and uh, and gas sale contracts and, and so forth, and, uh, and I understood them very, very quickly. Um, and um, didn't need people to explain them to me. I, I got them. And so the, the general counsel said, we'd like you to stay on uh, on a two-year contract. I, I qualified as a UK lawyer. So we're into 1998 now. Uh, come 1999, the oil price was down under $10 a barrel, no pay rises, even for people who had just qualified in the UK. So I went to a um, one of the multinational uh um, law firms, uh, I think it was top 12 in London at the time, and uh, and worked in their energy and infrastructure group. Uh, did a nine-month secondment to Dubai, working for a small oil company called Dragon Oil. Um, and, um, you know, that was quite an experience, production sharing contracts, uh, project financing, um, and also then came back and Got into uh, into railway refranchising, PPP contracts, uh, combined heat and power, blah blah blah, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and about that time, actually, um, you know, 
throughout, I suppose, going back to my university days in 1990, we had had a PhD student come and lecture us for four or five lectures uh, about climate change. And so this is 1990. So this is before the treaty had been signed, before the IPCC, all that sort of thing. But here's this PhD student uh, taking us through a moot court in the International Court of Justice against the uh, notional high-emitting countries uh, on behalf of a fictional island state that was loosely based on the Maldives that was going to be submerged by the year 2000. And, uh, and so that was very interesting. And I, I guess, you know, throughout the 90s, I, I was very supportive of, um, you know, the sort of actions that, that we should be taking, really, to, to decarbonise our, um, our, our industry and, and our planet. Um, and, and didn't really, though, look too much at the underlying science. You kind of think about scientists as being pretty honest and, you know, Experts. what did they come up with, you know, uh, you know, strange sort of conclusions and predictions, um, nothing to be gained for them doing it. And so you kind of just sort of accepted it. Um, and I guess, um, you know, we, well, we know the Maldives didn't sink uh, and actually most of the Pacific Island nations are getting bigger is their latest um, study on that. But, um, yeah, I guess uh, getting into about 2003, 2004, I, um, I started thinking about coming back to New Zealand and I, I, I wanted to come back, but I was working in a very specialised industry. Uh, there was next to nothing happening in New Zealand. There was two or three companies, Shell, OMV and Todd, they all had lawyers. Um, and because my background was as a general practitioner in Napier, I didn't have that sort of uh, ability to pop, you know, just walk into one of the big law firms. Um, you know, I did interview for a couple of them and, you know, that was all good. But anyway, but, but importantly for me, I started thinking, well, you know, New Zealand's got a, an elevated consciousness around environment. And is the industry that I've been working in good for the planet? Can I look my family and friends in the eye and say, look, on balance, I think this industry is good for New Zealand and, and good for the planet. And so that's when I really started uh, challenging um, myself to, to get to grips with uh, the science as best I could. You know, I'm a smart guy and I sort of thought to myself, well, you know, if a smart guy like me um, can't get his head around what's going on, then there's, maybe there's something that's not going on, for you know, if you know what I mean. Um, if it can't be explained simply so that you can easily understand it, then then why is this? There's often that there's a that's a red flag, right? Yeah. Yep. And um, you know, so I was a lawyer in London, and um, you know, I saw Al Gore's movie come out, Inconvenient Truth, and and the thing that troubled me was that um, they tried to play it in schools in, in the UK. And someone took them to court um, and got an injunction uh, preventing it because uh, it told a, a story that was, you know, partly based on really good science, but actually had quite a, a number of exaggerations in it. And the sea level uh, predictions were one of them. And being the lawyer I am, you know, you pull out the high court case and I, I read through it and I went, wow. You know, this guy's just won the Nobel Prize and, and he's actually told um, a lot of whoppers, actually. He, he actually won the, I think Al Gore won it with the Indian at that time who was heading oh. IPCC, Rajendra Pachori, at that, that year. And you wonder these people. But I, what you just said, Sean, you said about, you know, 
that a smart guy like you and not being able to understand it simply. And Don, you've often said, Don, that unless they can explain simply, I'm not interested. It just means they themselves don't have it clear. They're trying to confuse us. And that's how I've um, assessed it. I mean, over time, I've read as a layman many, many papers from government servants, local authorities, uh, university lecturers, and it almost seems that most of them write in a deceptive way that is designed to confuse. Now, you're, you've been trained in the law, so you'll understand this a bit more than me, but I find uh, language uh, from, from professionals really awkward to decipher. And so, uh, interestingly, just building to where we are today in this interview, um, you've talked about your gymnastic career. I had visions of um, Nadia Comaneci and the, the, the modern springboards. Imagine how good she would have been, Sean. Um, but you've had a lot of career gymnast, re, gymnastics, really, career springboards to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And and what you're building up to, and I know you haven't finished this uh, this um, timeline, is that you haven't started into this with no experience elsewhere. You've 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 learned and experienced the world before you got to this, uh, as I call, wrote it down, the elevated consciousness. And I thought that's a great line because most of us had that elevated consciousness probably from the 80s on when environmentalism sort of came into the national sort of parlance. But there's two ways it's gone. One is um, very costly, uh, very uh, awkwardly presented in a, in, and in a way that has no evidence behind it. And I'm sensing the way you've talked about it so far, you're an evidence-based man and that's how life's got to be. And, you know, all power to your arm. So look, sorry to interrupt. I just, uh, I, I figured, yeah, at that point, you've you've made a decision, this elevated consciousness, you've, you've watched Al Gore, you've um, decided like a lot of us that there's something screwy here. So I'll let you continue from there. Yeah, so I was in London at the time, and um, but an opportunity came up with my company. It was a Canadian company called Petra Canada, whose first president, interestingly, was a guy called Morris Strong, who actually set up the whole UN environmental program oh, in the early goodness. 1970s. And he would have been a fam- fabulous guy to meet. Uh, I've got his book, actually, I must read. But anyway, um, I went off to Calgary for a couple of years, uh-huh. and uh, some of my good friends in, in Calgary are very uh, are very environmentally um, conscious, um, you know, to the point of being Green Party equivalent, if you like, uh, voters, I, I should imagine. And I actually remember we had to do a, uh, a lucky dip sort of uh, you know, prize thing, bring along a, a cheap something you've got and we'll um, hand it out. So I brought along Al Gore's book, An Inconvenient Truth. I'd read it. I thought I'll put that in. And what do you know, my, my green mate, Harvey, he, he, he gets it. So anyway, um, but what I, what I, I guess, um, you know, and I was on a very good fast track to a uh, successful career by the stage. I was the European Council for Petro Canada. Um, we had about seven or eight producing oil fields, um, a significant number of barrels, about five times what New Zealand produces right now. I was doing an LNG uh, prospect, prospective LNG plant in Moscow. 
Um, in fact, I was just chatting to a guy today that I actually flew back. Well, it was my mum's 60th birthday, and I flew back from Moscow to London, through to Hong Kong, down to Auckland, and surprised her for her birthday, and went went home on the Monday. Um, that's kind of the sort of lifestyle I was I was I was um, living, and uh, and things were going very well for me career wise. And I had a lovely English girlfriend. She came with me to Canada, and I was put through my the ringer. Um, given all the big jobs, the tough jobs, the ones that the deals that have stalled, and uh, and I I feel like I kind of knocked most of them out of the park, and um, but still, nevertheless, I was always looking for that route back to New Zealand. In fact, I flew back from Calgary quietly with my partner, and was interviewed by Solid Energy uh, by Don um, Don Elder uh, for a general council role in, in Christchurch. So. Um, I was always looking, and uh, funny enough, I had had the, had the interview, and the next day I was going to meet with Don, and he said, look, Sean, I've just had a town hall meeting. Uh, the GFC has happened. Uh, we don't have any projects. There's no job for you, <laughs> which was probably a, a bit of a godsend, really. So uh, me and my partner went back to, to Canada, and we finished out the two years. We split up after that. Um, sadly, but you know she's much happier now, <laughs> I suppose. So, and we still stay in touch. She's a geologist, very brilliant one actually. Um, so, but um, the whole time, I suppose, was still thinking about the, the climate issue, and I got to a bit of a, a stop really because you, what, what's the, one of the problems you have as a lay person that doesn't have access to the peer-reviewed literature is that it's difficult to locate and read the source of the climate, you know, observations and um, and analysis and so forth. And you end up, you can get yourself, you know, bogged down on blog sites. And, you know, one blog site says this, another one says that, and, and you sort of go, well, you know, on balance, yeah, it's, you can't take it to the bank, if you know what I mean, right? So you, you can't sort of like read a blog and think, oh, I agree with that because on a personal cognitive bias nature, um, this works for me. Um, and that's something that I've always been very, very careful to, to ensure that just because you, you like what you're reading, um, it still needs to be rigorously tested uh, in, in the usual ways as much as uh, something you don't like. So um, anyway, the, the opportunity to, to come back to New Zealand really arose because of the John Key um, changes in petroleum industry management in New Zealand. And um, I'd, by this stage, I'd, I'd met my wife. We would, we'd been seeing each other for two years. We'd got, we got married in 2012. And she's a Kiwi, uh, ex-oil and gas lawyer too, actually. In fact, it was the industry that brought us together. And... Um, and I said, I think I, I flew back for the 2012 Petroleum Conference, um, networked with a few people. She knew all the lawyers that I needed to know. So I met the Todd Group guys, the Shell guys, and some of the big law firms. Um, they were all interested. Nice to network and meet people like that. And um, and and there was a lot of energy at the conference. It was, and I went back and I said, you know, uh, if I don't get a job, uh, you know, there'll be a job at some point somewhere along this way. And by this stage, I'd already applied for a couple of uh, senior roles, one with contact and one with someone else. can't remember. And I, and I got the feeling that I, I would have got it if I was actually, you know, in the country. So 
as, as a consequence, uh, you know, we went back and, and as it happened, just before I went back for the conference, my dad sent me a photograph of an advertisement in the Dominion, as it was, it was called the Dominion then, uh, from the Todd Group looking for a commercial manager. And I thought, well, I'm not a commercial guy, but I know enough about it. I'd, I had done a master's in petroleum law and policy by this stage, which actually had a lot of um, economics, uh, business investment principle, discounted cash flow modelling, uh, all the stuff that lawyers hate. Uh, and it was, it was all distance learning as well. So I, I had to actually knuckle down and figure it all out with itself. But in the end, I actually got a distinction with that and my, my thesis, which was a 15,000 word essay, um, got got an A1. I was told it was the only thesis that's ever been awarded the top mark. So um, that really propelled me into the attention of um, the, the politicians um, and uh, senior managers, in, in particularly in this particular area of my expertise. I joined the, uh, the, the think tank, the government industry think tank, um, as being, and I was the only lawyer on it. Uh, everyone else, you know, they're all engineers. So things were going really well. I was retained by the British Secretary of State for Energy to be uh, their advisor on uh, offshore infrastructure and uh, did, a, did a bit of work with them. Um, and, you know, things. I was a partner in a law firm by this stage. The company I'd worked for in Canada, they had merged, shut the London office. I joined a, a law firm and was head of oil and gas, major projects, and depending on who I was marketing to <laughs> at the time. So... Things were going really well, but but you know we we saw children on the horizon, wanted to come back, and um, and so we we made the plunge, and I got the job with the Todd Group. Now I was so excited. We we had the long, you know, three month holiday home via Petra for for Christmas. Um, then um, Thailand as well as it, it was you know stopped in Aussie, caught up with a couple of mates. So anyway, and. Um, I sort of I started uh, with the Todd Group, and, and I had a, the first year went really well. The second year, things just seemed to not quite work. I won't go into any more detail than other than to say, I got to a point where I was walking to work as if I was going to the old murder house when I was at school. You know, with the dentist, your legs get all heavy. You really don't want to go, but you have to. And I was going in the other door to avoid seeing my boss. You know, that relationship was getting a bit hairy, and I just thought, look, this is no good. Uh, it's a small industry. Uh, you're the guy, you're the junior guy, and the junior guy always loses. <laughs> and so I, I sort of decided that I'd preserve the relationship while I could, and uh, I'm glad I did. And I left um, and uh, set up my own business. Uh, so that was uh, 2015. And my business is a law legal advisory business. Um, and I very quickly got a job with helping MB on a, a study about bringing Māori into the into the sector. Um, picked up some other clients doing various bits and bobs, but it was a lot of fun. It was quite profitable, and um, and, and then I started thinking, well, well, do I have an opportunity here as part of my business to go back to university and to 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 study climate? And uh, there was a short course put on by Professor Dave Frame at Vic University, and. Uh, it ran for six weeks. It was uh, there were three hour lectures, mm -hmm. um, twice a week, I think, from memory. But it packed in pretty much a half year course into six weeks, and that was over late January to, to February. So it was before the university year started, and it was kind of during that period where all the government people and lawyers and everyone are all on holiday. So, so I did that, and 
I had a good relationship with Davey. She was at Canterbury University with my wife. They, they're not friends, but they know each other. Um, and, and they have mutual friends in common. But what, what struck me the most was that I ended up having more questions after the course than I had before the course. And because it was this kind of shortened um, process and I'd actually missed the first lecture, the first three-hour lecture, which was on the physical sciences, which I really wanted to get involved in. I sort of um, sort of felt, well, have I missed an opportunity? I've got Dave. Dave actually did a presentation to a, 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 a group that I put together out of my petroleum context, which was very well received. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, what I found was when I really pushed Dave um, in some of the areas that I was sort of confused about, um, his reactions weren't often that positive. Um, and sometimes he just refused to answer me. And, you know, a pattern emerged that you'd send an email and you'd never get an answer. Um, I, I remember asking questions in class and he said, we don't have time for this. Um, and it's probably right, you know, to be fair. Um, so... What I did learn was more about meteorology and more about IPC policies and processes. Yeah, very good course in that regard, but it didn't really go into the detail I wanted to go into. And um, when the government banned oil and gas exploration in 2018, I, I thought, well, you know, that was the the whole business plan for my business was to service companies coming from outside of New Zealand with whom I had great connections with from my London Canadian days. Mm. And um, and and obviously make a living doing that. And when they banned oil and gas exploration, well, that was that gone. And you know, New Zealand's still a pretty small town when it comes to oil and gas. And so um, you're talking two or three companies, all of whom, one of whom I used to work for, they weren't going to hire me. <laughs> um, and so you know, I, I sort of pondered about what I could do, and then said to my wife, "How would you feel about me going back to Vic full time?" doing James Renwick's course with, with Dave as well. And uh, she said, you know, she was supportive, $15,000. And, you know, uh, it's the time away from work as well, the bit of hours. Um, mm. But, um, you know, she was supportive. And uh, I met up with James. And I said, look, I've got an unusual background in the petroleum sector. And he thought, well, this is really interesting. <laughs> and uh, we had a pretty warm cup of tea and, and a coffee, uh, called a cup of tea and a, and a biscuit sort of thing. And, um, and and that was it. So I signed up. That was 2019, uh, February, and um, started off in the, in the course, one of the course that James and Dave ran was the physical sciences, so modelled loosely on the IPCC working groups. And um, I guess by this stage, I'd already been in touch with the IPCC rep here in New Zealand about, you know, what do you need to do to... You know, I had some questions actually about where certain language had come from because the fifth assessment report had come up with this headline saying that human, human activities have been the dominant cause of, of warming since 1950. And I, I was confused by that because there wasn't any warming in 1950. The, the global temperatures sort of uh, stagnated and maybe even declined through to about the mid-1970s, and then, then that's when we get the big increases. Um, and, um, 
and I looked at the the report, you know, a word search for dominant, and there it is in the summary for policymakers, but it's not in the main body at all. So, so that bothered me, and and I, you know, the Official Information Act doesn't doesn't apply. Um, so I've been liaising with this chap, very very decent chap, um, generous with his time. Uh, I won't name him. Um, who was at Ministry for Environment, and, and we'd had a few conversations. Anyway, I mean, I was doing James's course and um, sort of felt, well, well, maybe if I could sort of like, could could I apply to be on the IPCC and be an expert reviewer? And I did did make an application, which went nowhere. Um, but part of um, Dave's and James' course, I had to do an essay. And I, I was just going to do a... Uh, a bulk standard, you know, it's 5,000 words, knock it off on a weekend. Um, and um, I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I knew about a couple of recent, very interesting papers that had just, just come out. Um, one, one showing that, that, the, um, that the heating from the medium warm period was still affecting the deep ocean and that actually climate models weren't accounting for it. And it could actually mean that uh, half to a third or something like that of the the so-called modelled warming is actually coming from below, not greenhouse gases. So that was interesting. And about the same time, uh, uh, another paper from a, a, a very well-established uh, scientist called John Christie. Now, he's a leading sceptic, but without doubt, he has got credibility. He's a NASA medal winner and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, he came out with a paper showing that after 20-odd years of measurements using their satellite and with weather balloons, um, they couldn't find the sort of warming that models were sh suggesting should be shown uh, at the top of the atmosphere, a place called the troposphere. So that, that was interesting. I thought, well, might write right about that, but I thought a bit of, well, let's go to the... So that you've, got the, you've got the atmosphere, you've got the ocean, but you need to fill in the middle, which is the surface, right? So I figured I'll go to the IPCC report and pulled out the relevant page, page 189. And I'll just say a few words about, you know, what they say in there and, and this will be all done and dusted and, uh, and, and I'll be finished by Sunday lunchtime sort of thing. But I started looking at the underlying papers that were, were cited there and they were actually saying quite different things. Mm -hmm. So one that dealt with the uh, urbanisation of China and the effects that that had uh, on the temperature record was saying that, you know, in their evaluation, uh, about 30% of the warming trend was associated with urbanisation. That is that you've built up your, um, your city around your weather station and that has created... Uh, you know, a, a warming effect that's not associated with greenhouse gases. A, a, a secondary finding of that paper was that in the northwest, I think of it, of, of China, where they had built artificial oasis, they found a cooling trend. And that was reported as a secondary finding. But the IPCC actually only reported that secondary finding, saying that these authors had found a cooling trend in northwest China. Didn't talk about the, you know, the, the artificial warming trend that they, which affected the whole rest of China. 
And I thought, wow, am I reading this right? I mean, I, I had to actually get the paper translated. It was in Chinese. So I had the abstract in English, and I was so floored by what I read that I thought there must be something more to this. So I actually paid 100 bucks to have it translated, but no, there it was. So I, I was quite, so, you know, this is like Saturday evening. And I'm down. I'm I'm at my first paper on the surface temperature record, and mm. finding that the IPCC hasn't summarised it correctly. And I well, what what are the other paper papers that they're talking about here? So the IPCC, just to put it in context, the IPCC have said that the the global surface temperature record, which is an accumulation of weather stations like the one in Kelvin and, yeah. and those sorts. Um, and it's been built up over about 150 years and uh, started off mainly with just parts of Europe and then it spread to North America and, and, and now it's quite well defined globally. Um, and then the sea surface temperatures were really much just done in, in ports um, back in the, in the 19th century and uh, in the trade routes and were done in pretty unscientific manner, but that was the best information we had. And people have been saying, you know, can we really rely on it? And the IPCC was saying that you can, that, uh, that actually we're comfortable that any of the problems associated with how this the record's been put together and how it's been measured and sites, weather stations moved or, or now in shade or, or vice versa, um, there might be a 10% sort of variation in what the actual is, but it's, it's pretty minor. Yeah. And yet here's this paper in China, significant, because China's really important because it's gone through rapid urbanization yep. in the in the late 20th century right so and that's what happened with Europe in the late 19th century so if it happened in China then you can guarantee the same thing happened when London went from being a small village to you know to the big city it is um, you know you, you can probably find that there's a, a warming trend that's that's not related to greenhouse gases. So, so that's the importance of this, right? And, and I didn't realise it. But actually, this was one of the big discussion items that came out of the, the ClimateGate email release. I had no idea. And I'm looking at this going, well, I started reading some of the other papers. And here's a paper that was written by um, one of the co-authors, is one of the legends in numerical weather predictions. Her name is Eugenia Kalne. And, you know, she's no denier at all. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. She is... She is um, the uh, the protege of a bloke called Jewel Charney. Charney was was legendary in, in numerical weather predictions, and I've studied his work from the fifties. And he actually led a report that uh, Jimmy Carter sponsored in nineteen seventy nine, which pretty much um, is sets out the science as we really know it today, uh, with the uncertainty bound, which was. You double carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and you'll get somewhere between one and a half and four and a half degrees warming. And the IPCC over time has modified that sometimes in and out. Um, but that's kind of where it's at. So so this woman is, is clearly a formidable, respected, credible scientist, along with John Christie, who I mentioned earlier. He was also one of the authors and a couple of others. And, and they had done adopted a new technique on how to measure um, urban effects called uh, observation minus reanalysis. I won't go into it, but mm. they concluded that um, they could explain most of the warming trend over North America in the 20th century by non-greenhouse gas effects. 
And, and when you look at, the, you can actually look at the comments on the, what they call the second order draft of the report. So there's a first draft mm. that's given to the experts to review. Then there's a second draft. That's the second order draft. And you can look at what the experts commented. And one of them, a guy called Marcel Kroc, who is a Dutch guy, um, he said, well, you need to look at this particular paper because it says, you know, this pretty much the whole trend can be accounted for by non-greenhouse gas effects. Well, and then that was accepted by the IPCC. So sure enough, there it is. Uh, written, written, the lead author is a guy called Cinnamon Fall, so Fall at all, they call it, 2010. But they just simply said their um, their observations matched their reanalysis. It didn't go into this. What they were, yeah. didn't go into, fulsomely, the key part of their conclusion. And then I found out that actually Eugenia K. Uh, Kalne had written a similar paper for the prior um, IPCC, IPCC report, which said a similar sort of thing in a different sort of way called Kalnai and K 2004, I think it was. And that had also um, not really had the impact that it should have because the lead author of that particular section wrote his own paper, got it published, and was able to dismiss Eugenia's work um, by referring to his own work. And, source uh, of truth. And by the time it all came about, it was past the cutoff. She couldn't publish a response. She subsequently did. So, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, wow, this is, this is really bizarre. So I'm sitting there going, how do I, how am I going to knock all this together? And I've got a day left yes. of the thing. I'm emailing James Renwick going, I'm just not quite sure what I'm seeing here, James. This is a bit weird. And um, I can't recall actually what he came back with. But in the end, I wrote my um, essay. It needed to be handed in. And you can tell that, you know, the, the opening bit, and there's a nice little diagram of the, the, the Hadley um, circulation patterns and, you know, all pretty stable. And then, then you get to the surface temperature stuff. And I decided that, look, I'm going to base everything that I'm going to write on what I've read and what I've seen, and I'm going to expect to get reward for that. Um, and, you know, and here I am. I've sort of shown and highlighting uh, that the IPC's uh, summary on this particular topic um, it was deficient. And, and I went through uh, a, a number of the... Um, uh, by this stage, a, uh, a thesis had been published which showed up real big deficiencies with the the the, the usual the the go-to temperature record that the IPCC favoured was known as the Hadcrut data set. And what do you know? The lead author of the section dealing with this is one of the authors of the Hadcrut data set. And actually, you know, so you shouldn't you shouldn't have people who are so intimately connected with their work opining on whether someone else's work, which is critical, um, should be accepted and summarised properly. I mean, this is just daft. Isn't it? And yet, across the country, we seem to use IPCC's words as gospel. There is literally no debate. We have a single source of truth. We prefer the Michael Mann's hockey stick. I don't know how many presentations I have, you know, watched, seen, sat through. But each one's going to the same. And there just seems to be, it's almost like, you know, nothing to see here. This is it. Well, we take it at the word, isn't it? 
Even even 1996, uh, Frederick Sykes, uh, I've just found out he um, was one of the authors of, I think, AR2 or AR1. I can't just quite think which one it is. And he realised when it came to the final copy, his um, input and his panel's input had been corrupted. And I've I've only just found that out. Uh, Well, I've known about that. Um, The second assessment report. Um, And... um, so what happened was there was a, a meeting of the relevant scientists in a place called Asheville in the United States where the final version was agreed and the final version when it comes to um, the attribution of human activities to the warming trend. So everyone was agreeing there's a warming trend, but what was it, you know, the cause of it? And the, um, the, the the draft that everyone signed off on sort of went into basically said, well, we don't really know when we're going to be able to assess whether human activities uh, are responsible for this or not. And, and there are similar sort of um, cautions throughout, I think it was Chapter 9, was was it? And, um, and anyway, um, that went away with a, a young PhD chap called Ben Santa, um, he was the guy in charge of this particular chapter, and he, along with a couple of guys, including Phil Jones uh, from the Climactic Research Unit, um, redrafted it and um, found that there was a human fingerprint. And my, my recollection is actually the human fingerprint was sulfates from uh, motor vehicles, so it was cooling the planet. And uh, but but you know the headline was there's a human fingerprint. It went around the world. And, you know, global warming is here. It's humanity's fault. But the reality is, you know, you, you, this, is, this is what a, one of the tricks that the IPCC plays. They, they release um, quite grand, um, you know, statements, uh, talking points, none of which is peer-reviewed. Sometimes it's, it's based partly on the science, um, but, but it can be quite an extreme version of it. But it doesn't matter because by the time the science actually is then presented and produced, it's months and the story's moved on. No one cares. And so you, you have this process where, and we've seen this in a pattern now, where, where stuff gets leaked to the, the press. Um, and it, it may be it's, um, you know, I remember the last one I think was that uh, it, people were complaining that it was too conservative or something like that. So that got leaked. But on that occasion, um, Don, um, yeah, Frederick wrote to the, uh, I think it was the New York Times or Journal, something like that, an alleged fraud. I mean, it was all pretty seedy, really. Um, I've got, I mean, what what they say is that, you know, it went through a process whereby we did our own peer review um, and and felt that um, we're justified at the plenary, plenary hearing, I think it was, with the bureaucrats and the politicians to change it. And it's it's not really that good practice at all. And it turns out, actually, uh, two or three of those scientists were working on a paper that said the exact opposite. Um, and that got published a year later. That's <laughs> crazy. Yeah. And, and so just recently, we've had AR6 and we've had the synthesis report and we've had the, um, you know, the summary for policymakers and, and the three three components. And it seems, if, if my lay understanding is correct, there's a variance between them. They don't all speak the same language. And it's a, so how are the population supposed to trust anything that comes out of um, 
you know, if you're going to have a variability of, of responses, how do you trust the process? Um, and just a, as, as a week counter to that, last week I got uh, an email to my to my hand that said uh, an official record of the ice on Antarctica um, it had grown by a factor of X number of thousand kilometers. I think it was five thousand seven hundred yep. square kilometers, three yep. times three times the size of Stewart Island. I then subscribed to an Australian tip sheet called The Conversation, who had a complete opposite story on the same day. Um, the the ice uh, melt was just awful, and we're going to hell. So, where are we going to get? Um, and I don't, I'm not going to use the way they they talk about science operating by consensus. We know that it doesn't. Um, but when are we going to get science that is trustworthy? I mean, I think you sound like you've been onto it. So why is it that not everybody wants to have um, integrity and honesty and they, they're willing to put their name to something that is blatantly dishonest? Um, well, first of all, I saw a peer-reviewed journal publication, the European Geophysical Union's um, journal, which published about that Antarctic ice um, gain. Um, I heard something about a, a contrary position, but I haven't seen a peer-reviewed publication showing it. Now, I can't believe that, um, that two diametrically opposed um, observations could possibly happen. But you're right, though, Don, what, what can happen is that, um, you know, they may have been reporting on ice loss of a particular part of um, Antarctica, so the Western Antarctic uh, ice sheet that is melting. And, you know, when you use the big numbers, it sounds catastrophic, but, you know, when you realise that actually this happens every summer, you know, mm. <laughs> and then it gets, it all freezes back up. Um, and then there's a there's a, a known volcanic influence in the uh, Western Antarctic and, you know, Dave, my professor Dave Frame reckoned that was a bit irrelevant, but I've had read papers that that show that it's definitely worth relevant. investigating. So you know, and that's one of the reasons why I I'm trying to um, I guess mix a little bit of uh, science and politics because the answer is is politics, Dom. You know, we've we've got a political movement, uh, multiple agendas. Um, all of which have always run way ahead of the science. So, yes, um, we signed up. And, in fact, I've got Jim Bolger's cabinet minutes right here um, that signed us up to the UNF, uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And I was chatting with Jim yesterday about this. And I said to him, well, well first of all, this was before the IPCC had actually issued a report that said human activity is causing warming yep. and it could get dangerous. So this is a, a political movement. Who was the vice president? Al Gore. So when you, Don, talked about that second assessment report, its conclusions were critical to, actually I think there was critical to Kyoto, to getting a deal on Kyoto. And I traced through um, how the, um, as best I could, how the um, conversation went from we don't really know to um, there's a human fingerprint. And what I saw was correspondence from uh, a scientist from Washington, from the, the you know, United States government, 
um, wanting to see changes um, that uh, that you know were changes in the main body that reflected the summary that Ben Santa had written, understandably. And so you know, and and so I also have a nice image of Bill Clinton um, giving due credit to uh, Al Gore, who brought Kyoto home. So, you know, without doubt, these political, um, you know, machinations going on. I mean, as an energy lawyer, energy is political. You know, mm-hmm. they reckon that uh, Patton would have taken Berlin if he hadn't run out of petrol six months before the Russians got there. If Hitler hadn't have gone for Stalingrad but went for the oil fields in, in Azerbaijan, things could have been very different. Energy is power. Um, and, and, of course, if you're talking about restricting or making affordable energy more expensive, that is also power, um, and it's political. Um, but and, and the funding, uh, I, I've seen recent reports, our Ministry for Environment has doubled its funding in the last few years. Um, you've got regional councils um, championing climate change because it gets them funding. You have NIWA being asked to do reports for regional councils and city councils and, and others as well, and they get funded not to tell us that everything is fine. Well, I'm not, and I, I have to be very careful here. I'm not saying that the scientists uh, are, are doing anything untoward here. But what we find, I find, is that um, selective quotations are taken out of these reports and are then publicised and pushed as a narrative in order that these, you know, so the last one I saw from Greater Wellington Regional Council on climate extremes was actually fairly balanced. Um, you know, I mean, at one extreme, at the, at the worst emissions pathway possible, um, South Wairarapa is going to have the same sort of uh, temperature and environment as Northland, one of the great producing regions of New Zealand. I mean, is that it? You know, kind of. But but man, you know, I couldn't. Uh, you shouldn't underestimate the ability of press reporters or press comms staff to create controversy. And I think that the headline picked up one extreme prediction that might happen west of the Rumatakas. Mm. And, and that was bang, and I, you know, Greater Wellington's seeking funding from government. So, you know, it's big business. Um, and the scientists are really, I think, really are stuck in the middle. Um, I mean, not, I think there are scientists who are also, I mean, Professor Frame um, did confide in his class that, you know, earth scientists by their nature are likely to have uh, a, a high elevated level of environmental consciousness <laughs> mm. and will want to want to do good things for the planet. And, uh, and you know, so there's a, a cognitive bias there perhaps. Um, but, you know, the reality is that um, we, we use climate models and there are ones, ones that say not much is going to happen and there are ones that say that all sorts of bad things are going to happen. Well, what do you think ends up being published? Um, in, in the in the normal discourse, and, and you know you can't. The the press are part most most of the mainstream media are part of a international uh, cartel, if you like, of um, of uh, reporting 
um, where they all share their own stories that, that are local so that you continually have a, a news feed of somewhere in the world where, you know, currently it's Canada and New York. So that, that all gets sort of shared around and everyone can, can show it. And, you know, we, uh, I'm sure that the Cyclone Gabrielle, that went, you know, that would have gone viral. So, you know, and, and you sort of, I wrote a, an op-ed, one on Gabrielle and one on um, a, a development here in mm. Wellington by the, which is in Shelley Bay, they call it, um, very, very um, controversial for a lot of reasons. And uh, and I wrote. I, I felt that as a the decision to let that development go ahead was a council decision. That I was part of uh, the body that made that decision, and I felt that with that behind me, and the fact that I was an expert reviewer for the IPCC, and I had a master's, that I would be able to write a response to a uh, an op-ed that uh, one of the professors at Vic University had put put together on sea level rise and, and how bad everything's going to be. And I wrote a very careful, measured one saying that the Wellington City Council uh, engaged with a, a lot of experts and, you know, um, but the sea level rise claims are, are, are pre, pre, premature uh, and, um, and, you know, haven't passed peer review. So there was sort of a double-edged thing. But anyway, couldn't get anyone to publish it. Just, uh, you know, I think it was the uh, one of the one of the mainstream media guys Actually, it was a news hub. They had published this chap's um, op-ed, and I'd done a response within a day, and then had taken it away and said, "Well, this looks looks interesting, Sean." And within an hour, I came back and said, "Oh, we, you know, we're all tied up now. The news cycle, blah blah blah." And <laughs> it, it also seems like you know, with the whole media code of conduct, and when they got this. Uh what was that, a journalism fund, public interest journalism fund, between various conditions, there was also this condition that they're going to show this one particular side of the climate narrative. That's in one of those conditions there. So, oh, is it? Yep, it is. So right. that's, I, uh, that. I, I am not surprised you haven't uh, got much traction there. But Sean, I am, uh, and for our listeners, just a reminder, we are speaking with Sean Rush, ex-Wellington councillor and barrister. Sean, uh, looking at the IPCC uh, AR5 report, you know, but they're talking about, I think uh, David Frame would have been part of this. Uh, they've spoken in the context of New Zealand. Precipitation is likely to increase in Western regions in winter and spring. This is chapter 14. But the magnitude of change is likely to remain comparable to, nat to that of natural climate variability throughout the last century. This, yep. What does so, this actually even mean? So they can't distinguish between the variability? Uh, and, and, you know, a um, couple of things on that, Jesper. Thanks for raising that. Um, I got in a little bit of trouble with my professor um, uh, and Vic because we were encouraged to write a submission to the uh, Environmental Select Committee dealing with the net zero carbon bill. Mm -hmm. And I sort of like feel like I've got better things to do. And I thought, oh, I'll... I'll Whip a couple of pages together. I've, I've got a dictaphone. I've got uh, a, a remote secretary types these things up for me, so mm. I've got to whip someone off. And, and I included um, some of the issues that I'd raised in that essay that I, I mentioned earlier. And um, I also went into the um, uh, some of the that, that particular statement. I quoted it. And, uh, and, and the history of that actually is that Dr. Andrew Tate 
who's the head of Niwa, he was in charge of writing the New Zealand bit. So this has come from Niwa. And I've okay. heard this before, and it's written there in stone. And in fact, um, my professor, James Rembick, who's just had his book released, he's basically saying the same thing. Um, but he's very careful to, of course, you know, be um, measured about the the knock-on effects of other countries and immigration coming into New Zealand and, you know, New Zealand will be a sitting duck, you know, uh-huh. interesting stuff. And, and, you know, it might have a point, but in terms of the actual climate, it's not going to you know, break into something disastrous, you know, that we can't manage. I mean, we'll never get as much rain as um, as Taiwan and yet Taiwan gets by just fine, right? You know, and Napier will we'll never be as warm as Napier and Wellington. What do you think that is? Greenhouse gases? No, topography. Some I mean, when I look at it, it's as simple as that. In summer and autumn, it is as likely as not that precipitation amounts will change. As likely as not. So, yeah. so what so, exactly is the conclusion? Yeah. So, I mean, I we're jumping around a wee bit, but, mm. I mean, we're, we're what the scientists will say, and, and quite rightly say, is that their climate models are pretty good. And... I sort of go at what um, the the warming trend the warming trend has been um, traditionally it has been in the lower quartile of the modelled trend, uh, and I put that into my um, submission as well. I just posted the um, the IPCC's graph that came from the fifth report and said you know it's it's actually you know right at the bottom of the the lower quartile, um, and so you know and. and this is not really controversial. This is the graph that the consensus said. And anyway, I mean, uh, when I became a city councillor, mm. that report, that submission got recycled and, and was being thrown at me as, you know, as evidence of my climate denial. And, you know, I just, because at the time I was, I'd just become a public figure mm. and, and I just, I just froze. Honestly, I just didn't know what to do. And I, I'd totally forgotten what I'd written. But all I was getting was, you know, this guy from the, the, the Dominion Post was was texting me and ringing me and like wanting to get an answer. And and I'm sort of going, oh my God. And like, I had to actually sit an exam that morning. And this chap, I wouldn't say his name from the who I get on really well by right now. Now. <laughs> But he said, oh, you know, what we'd really like to do is um, interview you with a camera. And I'm sort of going, oh, God. I said, look, we're not going to do this. Uh, I've got an exam at 9.30. It's going to go for three hours. Um, interestingly enough, the uh, the examiner of that uh, exam was the fellow who wrote the, the criticism. But anyway, I mean, so and I, I rang up a, a friend of mine. She's in the sort of um, in comm space. And um, I said, what do I do? And she said, look, you, there's no point having a public argument with a, an expert like um, like the chap that I, uh, I was referring to. So, and I could see that. And I was I was still learning, you know. I mean, you know, you, you, you kind of evolve as you learn. So... But after things had calmed down a wee bit, I realised that actually some of the things he said didn't stack up. Mm. And, you know, I'd use this expert, you know, IPCC chart graph, um, and, you know, it was, I didn't think too much of it. Well, I didn't know that that chart actually gets periodically, annually gets updated. And so he'd, he'd said, oh, yours, your Sean's chart's dated. 
uh, if you have a look at the uh, a more recent version, um, you can see that actually the warming trend is, is right in the middle of the models and, 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 it, and it showed that. But funnily enough, his chart cut off at 2016 and yet this was 2019. And I sort of went, well, 2016 was a big El Nino year. That, that uh, spiked all the temperatures. And sure enough, the 2019 version showed that the temperatures were back down into the quarter. And I thought, you know, once again, another one of those, am I seeing this right? And then there was another comment made. I'd, I'd sort of pointed out that the Little Ice Age actually, you know, had quite a big temperature variation. It, it took global temperatures down. And one, you know, peer-reviewed publication that's been well regarded by the IPCC suggested that it was caused by an Atlantic Ocean two-degree um, drop in temperature, which is massive. Well, it's massive. And, and so I, I, I put that in there, and, and the comment came back that, well, the Little Ice Age was a regional event. And I've heard this before, but I know that the IPCC defined the Little Ice Age by it being a global event. And I'd sort of like liaise with my supervisor, and I said, well, this is what the IPC say. And then I found out that he'd actually authored a paper about the Little Ice Age in New Zealand. I was furious, absolutely furious to actually find that. And so when I talked to him about it, he goes, well, yeah, they kind of, I didn't quite mean it that way. I meant that um, uh, it, it had varying effects around the world, which is absolutely right. And if that's what he had said, that would have been fine. But actually, he said it was a regional event, made me look like I didn't know what I was talking about. Mm. So, 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 you go on. Yeah, so I was just going to say, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're an hour into this interview. Uh, we'll have to sort of move it along onto some other topics that we need to talk about desperately. But isn't it interesting? The, the, the mere layman, Don, hears all this, and there must be hundreds of Sean Rushes out there trying to get the truth in front of people, trying to say this stuff's been sort of tainted or, or embellished for effect. And yet we've got, as you talked about earlier, politicians who are succumbing to the noise for political effect. Um, how the hell are we going to stop this? Because it's going to eat us alive uh, financially. Is it? Is it that a huge credit crunch um, just fixes everything? And we have a huge economic meltdown, and this stuff goes away. Because one thing you've talked to me to us tonight about that really sticks with me is about energy security, and and I link it to cost. If you can't give plentiful and cheap energy to your country, you're seriously um, diminishing its um, capacity. And uh, I think we're way ahead of the market. That's just my opinion. But how do you think we're going to um, get this uh, this correction? And and while you're thinking of that, uh, we do need to move on to the RCP and SSP story because I know um, we're vitally interested in that. So, yeah, a couple of things. How do you assess how we can get this correction through the Political machine. Well, I mean, there's only one political party that's actually asking questions and, and inviting people to ask questions about the science. That's the ACT Party. Um, I think, though, that people are starting to wise up to the fact that we've just given $140 million away to a, a, a an Australian steel manufacturing company um, at a time when um, we're laying off staff at Victoria University. Go figure. And we're giving it to a company that uses coal in Australia. 
uh, well, not just that, but they they shut down the electric furnace yeah. that was operating uh, there when they bought the asset. Uh, they shut it down, started using uh, iron sands instead, which meant they had to use more coal. And now, now they've they've just conned the New Zealand taxpayer out of $140 million to do what they should have done in the first place, which is kept the electric arc first. Yep. You know, it's, it's madness. So, you know, I think, um, you know, Kiwis, and I'm certainly in this boat as well, Kiwis want to do their bit. Kiwis want to um, adopt, adopt uh, decarbonisation measures to the extent they don't bankrupt us. You know, and I've always said this. I said it on council when I approved the zero uh, carbon policy. I said, there's no blank checks here, guys. You know, we can't um, have this come at the cost of the education of my nine-year-old boy, you know, and my six-year-old girl and, and my ageing parents, you know, and, and the health system, you know, and, and we, we need to start mm-hmm. thinking about, we need, first of all, to, to expose the alarmist narrative for what it is. It is hopelessly unreal. Um, and, and most climate scientists will know that. Professor Dave Freeman, mm-hmm. in one lecture, dropped the bombshell that was climate change is not an existential threat. You could have heard a pin drop. And I'm sitting there going, wow. And, you know, a number of the students, young students, the activists, they were really upset about that. But Dave was very clear about it. And, you know, I was at the Court of Appeal a week or so ago hearing a barrister talking about climate change being the existential threat. We must, uh, the minister must do this, that, and the other thing. And, and I, I went to him afterwards and I said, you know, that's not true. You've misled the court. And he goes, oh, I'm a, you know, it doesn't matter. It's such a big problem that I don't think the court will have any problem with it. And, you know, and this is this is where we're at, you know. I mean, these are smart people. So um, it, it's going to be bold. It's going to be brave. But, but you know, nevertheless, it, it's not that difficult. Tell the truth. Put some honesty out there. Ask our scientists to be honest. Ask our press to be honest, you know. We're not saying it's a hoax. It's not not a hoax at all, but it's not an existential threat. It's a it's a it's a problem, and we need to deal with it. You know, before we do run out of fossil fuels, then we'll have a real big problem. And I think that's the real political motivation that Kiwis will buy into. Sure. So so uh, let's talk a little bit about RCP, uh, representative representative concentration pathway and the, the shared socioeconomic pathways, the the risk uh, profiling that's going on uh, around this country in terms of our coastal infrastructure uh, and other infrastructure. You know, you've you've been at a council um, dealing with this. I know uh, every councillor in New Zealand is on the, I think there's 57 councils in New Zealand that have coastal, um, coastal uh, perimeters and they're all being tied up in knots with modelling uh, over four or five scenarios, uh, one including 8.5. And, of course, uh, the MFE guidelines, as I understand it, have not been uh, defined uh, or may- perhaps tightened up because, you know, last October, I think it was, or was it last August, the IPCC even came out and said the most likely scenario uh, would be much less than 8.5. It's probably, I think, 2.6 to 4.7 from memory. Um, you know, there's masses of people involved in setting up models for every council around the country. I imagine there's huge budgets being set for the worst case scenario. There's a lot of consultants and engineers getting fat out of this. Um, 
where do we draw the line here? Is there a line to be drawn? Well, I mean, the coastal planning guidance is clear. It is not part of the Ministry for Environment's responsibility, and they acknowledge that. Coastal planning comes from the Department of Conservation, and it's known as um, Proposal uh, 24, I think it is. And it makes it very clear in the guidance to that that you use likely scenarios. Now, I'm having a very warm conversation with the Ministry for Environment, um, and we're working through uh, this issue along with um, another issue, which is relating to um, recent estimates of sea level rise. Um, but they, they say very clearly, you know, you need to use a likely scenario and it's up to the politicians as to what they want to, you know, measure that is. But, you know, that, that can be challenged in a court, right? So if it's not, if it's extreme, then it's not likely. So, so what um, seems to be distracting planners, certainly at the Kapiti Coast and in Wellington City Council, is guidance that was issued by the Ministry for Environment in, originally in 2017, now, which, which talks about guidance for coastal developments. Seems to uh, not just overlap, but almost duplicate what the Department of Conservation does. And I understand there's a bit of history between the two departments as to which was, you know, who takes prominence. And I also understand that that guidance that came out you know, dated 2017, was actually sat on by the previous minister, Nick Smith, National Party, didn't want to release it. And James Shaw got it released, but I, that's just something I've heard. But importantly, the Ministry for Environment's guidance has a disclaimer at the very front saying that this guidance is not to displace any law, regulation or guidance already enforced. So it makes it very clear that it is subservient to the Department of Conservation. And to be completely fair, it's a great piece of work. It does talk about uh, using RCP 8.5 to stress test your modelling. It doesn't say you adopt it for your planning. It says to stress test it. And frankly, RCP 8.5 is so unrealistic. It's been dubbed as implausible by the IPCC. It's written in the AR6 report. Um, work um, that had been done up to the 2017 guidance from Ministry for Environment, and that had been done by um, scientists at NIWA, very good work. They relied on a, a, a published paper which the IPCC had ignored in the sixth assessment report. So my challenge to NIWA, who are rewriting this, um, uh, this guidance to update it, uh, for 2023 is to ensure they are very close to what the IPCC are now saying about RCP 8.5. I have suggested to the Ministry of Environment they need to strengthen the cross-referencing to the coastal planning um, guidance from the Department of Conservation and make it very clear how those two work. Um, but RCP 8.5 is really only used now to, to, to give your climate model a massive big shove so that you can then see what actually pops out. Because if you don't give it a, a hard enough shove, you might not find 
where those variations are that uh, are above the sort of natural variability. But like we just talked before from um, about New Zealand, uh, unless you really shove it a lot harder than we're getting at the moment, you don't know where the rain is going to really be. So and, and so that's perfectly, perfectly standard um, and acceptable. But you don't use it for planning. <laughs> you use it to test if we do this, how is the wind going to get stronger? Are we going to get uh, longer uh, frost-free days? Um, is the precipitation going to change? That, that's why you, you use it. You know, put 10 million volts through the thing and see what it does. And, so, um, and then you can then identify which particular aspect of the climate is most sensitive. It's as simple as that, right? What happens if we do this and really, really shove it hard? Does the sea level, uh, does the cliff start eroding? You know, all these sorts of things that you, you wouldn't get if you simply, um, you know, use your observations over the last 50 years, for example, and, and you know, try and figure out when well, 50 years' time it doesn't, we don't really know what's different, uh, if anything. So, so that 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 needs to be made very clear to um, the the coastal planning community and to the, um, particularly the uh, you know the private contractors, um, and, uh, and and there needs to be, uh, you know, I see city councils and I've worked obviously with Wellington, they're not interested. And seeing anything other than worst case scenarios, and I just don't understand it. I said, "Well, but you know, and I know there's and I work with them, right? <laughs> I'm no longer an elected member; they don't have to worry about listening to me." It's pretty much the the, the response I got. But you know, even the South Coast uh, ratepayers um, who who were constituents of mine, and and I know their their leaders, and I've said, "Look, guys, you know what you're seeing here is is part of a, a very aggressive." model which is almost certainly not going to happen but they've got their own sort of game plan as well they want the city council to build seawalls because they are being inundated you know once or twice a year the the sea does come over onto their roads and so you know the city council should build some seawalls you don't need to do a climate model to to, to to know that but you know their concern is well if you if you actually take away this these latest estimates and don't use the RCP 8.5, then the, the model looks kind of, well, not much happening here. Um, maybe the council can go build another cycleway or something. So, yeah, so there, there are very, it's very interesting how people's sort of agendas, you know, line up. It's not all about getting mm -hmm. carbon out of the atmosphere and that sort of thing. Sometimes it's, there's a selfish aspect about well this, this suits me uh, i can get funding for this or i can get a contract to do this two years uh, you know um the recent claims not claims but the recent um study that uh, about sea level rise um it came out of um some folks that i know of at university good scientists um but there's 20 million dollars of funding at stake right so we're talking these, these are big numbers um, and it's involving, you know, geoscientists, you know, experts in tectonics at, at GNS. Um, it's involving people from abroad who, who do, you know, sea level modelling internationally. Um, but they use quite novel technology, and, and as a consequence, it's, it doesn't quite stack up. So that's been held up awkwardly. It's been held up for nearly a year in the peer review. Peer review. Can't get yeah. published. 
And I've been, because I, you know, because I've got a, a master's of the subject and because I was running the city council and I knew all about all the sea level measurements and all the different other climate indicators, it was my job, my passion. When this came out, I just went, well, this is crazy. And I rang up a few old mates from the oil and gas industry uh, who are geologists, you know, uh, they, they are contract geologists, so they might do oil and gas one day, but civil engineering and, and stuff the next day. I said, what do, you, what do you reckon about this? And they said, no, it just doesn't make sense. It's inconsistent with everything we know and, and the latest research. And So anyway, so I've pursued that, and uh, I, I know the guys. My heart goes out to them, actually, because it's a really, really interesting piece of work. They've worked really hard to get it together, but the unfortunate thing is um, they assumed that it would pass the peer review, and, and now it's, it's kind of let loose. The planners have got it. Uh, and once they've got it, it's hard to get it off them. So, so just, a minute, just a minute, this, Sean. So our planners are now using something that's not peer-reviewed. It is still stuck there. And yeah, that, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Yeah, so you might remember uh, it was the 1st of May last year. It was a Sunday that uh, this sort of um, whispers of, a, of, of lots of parts of coastal New Zealand was sinking. Yeah. And that would double the effect of sea level rise and... Um, they signal, uh, set out um, Tony here in Wellington and the south coast. And I drop my son at Queen's Wharf every day and there's a tide gauge there. And I look at it now and again just out of interest and there's one up to Papa as well. And I know that the currency level there, which is only you know, a couple of kilometres from Tony, um, is, is below where it was in 2016. And that's because... That was an El Nino year that, that changed things. Uh, well, actually, the, the following La Nina changed it. And uh, in Kaikoura, Kaikoura lifted, um, you know, a couple of metres along the actual coast, but it lifted, um, you know, Wairapa and Wellington as well, and probably eliminated about 30, 30, 40 years worth of sea level rise. So I'm sort of going, God, you're panicking a lot of people here. And, um, you know, I've got a batch on the um, Kapiti Coast, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> and I'm sort of going, you know, and then, then I see that the mayor of the Kapiti Coast at the time wanted to immediately put on the LIMS reports the output of this model. And, and it came packaged with an online tool. You can go, you can still Google it, and it's, it's actually quite, quite sexy, actually. Um, you can Google it and you can go on, you can put your different representative concentration pathway, um, and you can include the vertical land movement, uh, which is this subsidence um, trend. Now, the problem with that trend is that it was taken during what they call an interseismic uh, period, which was between 2003 and 2011. So it was just seven years. And as a consequence, it doesn't have any of the uplifting stuff. <laughs> just crazy. So no wonder you've got this trend going out with, with massive sea level rise, you know, 30 centimetres of Tony, you know, I mean, the whole of New Zealand, only um, so, well, sea level came up by 20-odd centimetres the whole of the 20th century. And to, to say that Tony is going to be under by 30 centimetres uh, in a matter of 10 or 20 years is, is asking a lot for people to believe. And this tool, the NZ Sea Rise, if I'm not wrong, I believe the only measurements it's considering is from 2003 to 2011, isn't it? Seven years. Yeah. So, so, and the the, the thing about, I mean, I um, touched base with a uh, a satellite expert that I know, mm. and, and she said, "Well, why don't they use the whole set?" And I said, "What do you mean?" She goes, "Well, 
you can you can download the data. It's been running since two thousand and whatever, and 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 right up till right now, so two thousand twenty one or twenty two, I think it was. Mm. So they so they instead of actually like downloading the whole data set, they've un- downloaded a short piece because it was actually downloaded by GNS for a totally different reason. And they actually downloaded data across the whole of New Zealand, not just coastal New Zealand. And they wanted to make sure their data was not distorted by these annoying, uplifting earthquakes. So they deliberately went for the time uh, period of five years or more where they had minimised. In fact, they even took out data that was corrupted because of two major earthquakes in the South <laughs> Island, right? Now, this is all written up in a peer-reviewed publication and published in a, in a leading journal. And I'm reading this going, oh, this is interesting. And what do you know? They had trouble getting half the data set, half the data set, which is the bit. So you, you collect data flying North Pole to South Pole and South Pole to North Pole. One's the ascending data, the other's the descending data. Well, the descending data... Um, was a bit corrupted or something and, and and wasn't collected. And then they so they say, and as a consequence, there there is um, limited use for forward projections. So I emailed GNS and I said, wasn't isn't this what you guys or the other parts of the team are actually doing? They came back and said, well, yeah, I suppose you're right, but um, you know, it's the best data set we've got, um, you know, and it's probably not likely that we're going to have an earthquake in Wellington anyway for the next 150 years. So probably good and I went well I'm, I was sitting on the board of trustees for the Sky Stadium at that time when we made a decision we weren't going to insure the stadium anymore because premiums are so high that it was far better to spend the money on strengthening the stadium than paying you know to have a, a partial replacement so and here's his genius telling me there won't be an earthquake in Wellington for 150 okay. years it just didn't add up and, Does it? Uh, you know, I've been quite disappointed how I've been treated by uh, the scientific community in, in, or some members of the community anyway just wouldn't respond to me. I mean, I was an elected member, policymaker, asking legitimate questions of taxpayer-funded scientists. So, you know, some question marks there, which, you know, I'll take up with the right people at the right time. But for now, you know, I'm, I'm letting the guys get their uh, work done and, and to try and knock their manuscript that they submitted in July last year. Hopefully they can get it in a state that it can be published and we can make some adjustments maybe to their online tool and tidy up the Ministry for Advices, uh, Ministry for Environment's uh, guidance. I uh, look forward to that, Sean, and I'm conscious of the time. But quickly, before I go, what's next for you? Uh, well, actually, I'm in the, um, I'm not sure if I should say this, but I am actually put my hand up to stand for the Act Party. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going through that process at the moment. Um, but I'm, uh, I, you know, when I decided not to stand for council, what I realised was that I'm far better lawyer than a politician um, and that I could actually probably do more meaningful things for my community uh, as a, as a uh, project lawyer, energy and infrastructure lawyer, um, but also as a, as a public, public law watchdog. Uh, you know, I see decisions being made based on very flimsy evidence, um, manufactured stuff, uh, surveys that are self-serving, you know, all that sort of thing. And, and you know, that's why people in a lot of places are really unhappy with their city councils because the, the, the city council create their own narrative that they, they fervently believe don't get out of their echo chamber to ask the 
population what they want and then wonder why everyone hates them when they stick a bloody cycle away right through their businesses, destroying their businesses, taking all their car parks when only a half a dozen people use it. You go, well, I remember one of my Green Party colleagues, and I love her dearly. She's a lovely lady. She goes, Sean, I don't understand why people find us so unpopular. I said, build them a second Mount Vic tunnel, Sarah. They'll love us forever. <laughs> <laughs> oh. it's, it's funny you you bring that, that sort of stuff up today. As I was listening to Mayor Brown on the um, radio tonight, I thought, um, I wonder if you've actually, your $373 million budget hole has anything to do with RCP 8.5 being budgeted for in it. And maybe I could have taken $100 million out of your budget for you instantly, Mayor Brown, but I hope he's on top of it because he's Mr. Fix-It. He'll be right. Well, you know, we're drifting a wee bit, but I mean, yeah. you know, you see the, the media obviously wanted the, the Labour Party guy to win. And they've been beating Brown up ever since. And uh, ever since. I think, uh, you know, more power to the guy if you ask me. I mean, I, I made a joke on uh, about, um, so Wellington has a one-third share of uh, an airport as well, Wellington Airport. And um, the, the prospect of selling those shares came up a year or so ago. Well, suddenly my, my Labour-aligned councillors turned into militant trade unionists. You're trying to privatise the public assets and all this sort of, I thought they're going to march off down to the ferry terminal and, you know, rekindle the days of Jim Knox and, you know, tattooing the <laughs> solidarity sister, all this sort of thing. And I just, and I just pointed out to them, do you realise that Infratil owns the airport? It's a private <laughs> asset. And if we're not careful, they're going to expand it. We're going to have to pay our share of this very unpopular, high-emitting asset. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, by that stage, it was too good a story. It was all privatisation. Just go talk about dog whistle politics. Oh, we, <laughs> could, we, we could put them onto a fire in the UK, and they want to have absolute, I don't quite know what fire stands for, but uh, they want absolute zero and zero flying. So, look, uh, airports will be valueless uh, if they have their way. <laughs> well... <laughs> You know, and, and we need, it's unfortunately, though, we can laugh about it, but it's no laughing matter. No, it doesn't. And, uh, I had a very good conversation, actually, with Jim Bolger yesterday about methane. And if you don't mind me um, just reading from the minutes, the Cabinet minutes that approved New Zealand going into the United Nations Framework Convention. And this was Jim's, Jim was the chair, and he mm -hmm. remembers this. And I've, um, paragraph 9 says that the convention guidelines require countries to address all greenhouse gases, which includes methane. New Zealand has significant agricultural methane emissions and an unknown level of nitrous oxide. In the absence of significant scientific and technological advances, we do not expect to be able to make significant progress on either methane or nitrous oxide. Other countries will be in a similar position as the Convention specifically recognises the need for technology to be available to enable countries to deal uh, with emissions, blah, blah, blah. We believe New Zealand's inability to reduce emissions in these areas can be adequately justified. And I said to Jim, how has that ever fallen out of the conversation? He goes, I don't know, Sean. I don't know, but we need to protect the farmers. And, you know, I see the Irish, uh, the Irish and the Dutch are now going to make big cuts to their herds. Well, that's just going to affect food production. It's just, you know, and I, I can tell you also, my mate Dave Frame, he wrote a scathing email to James Shaw about global warming potential. And basically, you know, he's made the point, and it's well accepted in the science, that methane is a short-lived 
gas. Yes. It goes up, it comes down, provided you, you have a the same amount going in as the same amount coming out, you're not adding to the warming of the planet. You do not need to reduce it to zero. You simply need to stabilise it. And, you know, and, and, and James Shaw got a rocket and uh, he, he came back and his, I actually went through the Official Information Act and asked, well, what was your response? And it kind of was like, well, we've made commitments to the international community and like you go, well, how about making, uh, how about sticking up for your bloody New Zealand farmers? Yeah. yeah, well, there's a there's good activity in that uh, space right now, Sean, and uh, all power to people like you who mention it uh, and bring it to other people's attention. We're doing our best on RCR to bring it to attention of as many people as we can. I'm aware today of an article written by Barry Brill, um, and he's published it on Bassett, Brash and Hyde's um, website. Uh, and tonight it, it really does, uh, sorry, today it really does highlight what's in front of us and it does put the wood on the minister it puts the wood on every politician who has signed and continue to sign new zealand or can sign i should say new zealand farmers to this horrible 48 percent nonsense and of course when you keep pushing that narrative for 20 years um and you're trying to change it uh the blood nose has to go somewhere and sadly, the blood nose will be paid for by the whole community um, uh, because these politicians move on and they leave us with a hangover. So anyway, um, Sean, I think we could go on for hours. I, you started off um, giving us your uh, your career uh, up to date or to date, and you talked about gymnastics. So I'm going back to that. We've had a real gymnastic performance uh, today uh, listening to you. It's, it's, it's great to have the to and fro that you understand that's gone on. Um, and we're just, this platform that we're using is all about trying to bring the truth to people uh, and both sides of the story. Uh, it seems pretty one-sided to me at the moment because we can only, uh, we've had so much of the other side of the story for so long. It's so important we get this side out. And so uh, can I thank you on behalf of Greenwashed and Jasper and I and, and all our listeners, thank you for being so candid and we look to have you back one day. Thanks very much. I'll be thrilled to come back. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much, Sean. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.